A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Emmanuel. And welcome to the first sermon in our Hebrew series, Walking by Faith. When I was a kid, I remember one time hanging out in a mall bookstore, back when malls were a thing, waiting for my mom to finish running her errands. And I came across a book with a title that I thought was boring, but an author's name I thought was interesting. The author's name was Watchman Nee, and the book was called The Normal Christian Life. But I had some time, so I flipped to the front of the book, and I read, What is the Normal Christian Life? The object of this study is to show that it is something very different from the life of the average Christian. Indeed, a consideration of the written word of God should lead us to ask whether a normal Christian life has ever, in fact, been lived upon the earth, save only by the Son of God himself. The scriptures are not stating something special or peculiar, a high level of Christianity. They are presenting God's normal for a Christian. And I was really intrigued by this idea that there was a difference between kind of the average Christian life and the normal Christian life, that the life of faith as presented in Scripture is somehow something totally extraordinary, but also completely normal. And as we journey on in Hebrews, we're going to be confronted with a whole list of saints. Men and women, we are not asked to admire, but to imitate. We're not asked to imitate their fame or to copy their noteworthy deeds. We're only asked to live by faith and to die by faith as they did. And in today's Hebrew passage, two particular qualities of faith are highlighted again and again. And it seems that these two qualities are not highlighted because they are markers of special faith or rare faith, but actually because they are basic necessities for every follower of Jesus. These are qualities that you and I need to call upon Jesus to develop in us as we follow him, qualities without which we will not be able to complete the journey of faith. What are these qualities? Please look in your Bible or your bulletin at verses 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, 
For you have need of endurance so that when you will have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So what is it that we must not throw away? Anyone? Confidence. And what is it that we have need of? Endurance. Yes. Confidence and endurance. Now, confidence can also be translated as boldness. But this is not boldness that's bravado, which is a show of boldness designed to impress or even to intimidate. It's not arrogance. It's not presumption. It's actually not even healthy self-confidence. It is nothing more or less than taking Jesus at his word and moving through life in the assurance that his promises are true. Now, Hebrews is kind of an odd book. It's kind of a letter and kind of a sermon, and nobody knows who the author is. We do know that he wrote to a group of Jewish Christians with whom he had a close and I think a very pastoral relationship. And just for the sake of convenience, I'm going to be referring to the writer of Hebrews as their pastor. So in today's passage, the pastor is exhorting the Hebrews to walk by faith with boldness and with endurance. And what's interesting right away is that it's clear that the Hebrews have done this before. The pastor is asking them to actively draw on the memory of how they have trusted Jesus in this way in the past. Verse 32, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. The Hebrews to whom this letter was directed lived in a time and place where Christianity was super unpopular, both politically and socially. Christians weren't actually being killed. They weren't martyred. But it was open season on Christians for mocking, for hassling, for property theft, and even for sort of religious profiling by the law enforcement of the day. And the phrase, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, in the Greek is meant to evoke the rigors of an athlete in training. They, this picture likens the faith, the life of faith, to an obstacle course that is strewn with suffering that takes effort to overcome. Now, some of us here today may have experienced long periods of time when we were able to kind of glide along in faith without too much trouble. Maybe belief in Jesus was the status quo where you grew up, and walking in faith was a little like sailing smoothly on untroubled waters, maybe even with the current. But for anyone who experiences significant obstacles to the life of faith, please know that suffering and obstacles, not ease, is the norm for those who follow Jesus. The vast majority of the New Testament was written to churches who were struggling with all kinds of threats and obstacles to faith. Some specific hardships are listed here. You were sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, where you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
Now, the Greek word translated as public exposure is theatrizome. The early believers weren't just being subtly insulted or snubbed in one-on-one encounters because they were Christians. Walking by faith meant they were popular targets for ridicule and mockery on the scale of theatrical entertainment for the masses, as if it were a group sport to make fun. Now, I feel like imagining the horrors of this degree of public shaming is easier than ever these days. Has anyone here happened to witness someone being taken down publicly by a mob or trespassing against the spirit of the age? And I'm not talking about someone being held responsible for wrongdoing. I'm talking about someone who voiced a faithful but extremely unpopular opinion that then triggered a dogpile of indignant ridicule and insults and jeering. Maybe like you, like me, have seen it and have gotten a little sweaty and squeamish at the realization that that could be you. Our Hebrews brothers and sisters didn't have to imagine it. They lived it. Not only had they suffered insults and mockery in the public eye, they took financial hits because of their bold faith. Some lost their property. Some lost their freedom when they were falsely accused and imprisoned. Nonetheless, the Hebrews had held on to their faith boldly and endured. Even when they could have escaped notice by standing quietly by when their brothers and sisters were taking the heat, they opted instead to publicly partner in ministry with those who were being pilloried. I'm kind of in awe of these believers and these obstacles that they overcame so gracefully. For any of us who might be tempted to feel anxious or indignant about the possibility of, say, losing friends or losing income or even facing legal problems because of our faith, it is really wonderful to know that we can do something other than cry foul and clutch our pearls. Sure, it may be unjust, and yes, those losses are real. But the response of bold and enduring faith is not only to accept the sufferings of injustice, but to accept joyfully. The Hebrews lived out their confidence that Jesus was providing a better possession and an abiding freedom greater than anything they might have held in life. This is the bold faith of a people who took Jesus at his word when he said, blessed are you when people hate you. Blessed are you when they exclude you. Blessed are you when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And yet, and yet, the reason for this letter is that these same amazing saints have come to a point in the journey of faith where they seem to be in danger of abandoning their confidence in Jesus. The language of verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, refers to the act of casting off something useless or flinging away garbage. From context clues throughout this letter, it seems that they've begun flirting with the idea of turning back of stepping away from Jesus, thinking about 
loosening their grip on the promises of God in hopes of avoiding criticism, avoiding conflict. That was becoming more and more appealing. And they were toying with adopting a new approach to faith, not walking in confidence with endurance, but shrinking back, laying low, keeping their heads below the parapet, lying under the radar. The trouble was, this strategy was not nearly as sensible as it might have sounded. In fact, it was the beginning of a trajectory that, if it went unchecked, was going to result in catastrophe. Bit by bit, their healthy, robust fear of the Lord alone would be replaced by an ugly, self-serving desire to please and appease powerful people instead. Love of God and love of neighbor would be sacrificed to be replaced by love of reputation and love of social status. But they didn't see it this way yet, and it seems they were willing to justify this approach even from Scripture. Better theologians than I am have decoded the message of the Old Testament prophets that we see quoted in verses 37 and 38, which points to the possibility that the Hebrews had been digging through the prophets to rationalize a new tactic, this new tactic of shrinking back. In these verses, the author has Frankenstein together some snippets from the prophecies of Isaiah and Habakkuk. There's a passage in Isaiah that begins, Yet a little while, which is quoted in verse 37, and the balance of that passage counsels the people of God to withdraw and conceal themselves from danger. And they were applying that, by applying that counsel to their current circumstances, they might have thought that they'd found kind of a respectable rationale for laying low. But the writer of Hebrews knows that this is actually an abuse twisting of Scripture. And so he takes that snippet from Isaiah, and then he pairs it with a passage from Habakkuk that sort of turns that strategy on its head and instead gives the strongest possible encouragement to live by faith boldly in the power of the Messiah who had come. 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not, will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Brothers and sisters, we are not meant to live the life of faith slumped inside on the couch with the shades drawn. We are meant to walk by faith outdoors, among the people, with cheerful acceptance of any suffering that might come our way pressing on toward the day when Jesus has promised to turn the world right side up again and right side out again, a day when we receive the reward of faith and we can bask with our brothers and sisters in the glorious sunshine of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Faith that is hidden, that is kept covered, is faith that weakens and dies. because. Paradoxically, one thing that seems to really, really help to strengthen faltering faith is engaging in an environment that provides a lot of resistance to faith. As Christians, we tend to kind of interpret suffering as punishment, and sometimes suffering is correction, but here we're taught that suffering is often simply resistance training. 
It's the type of training that Jesus himself was perfected by. Isn't that amazing? Hebrews states earlier that it was fitting that the Father, in bringing us to glory, should make the founder of our salvation, Jesus, make him perfect through suffering. To grow in endurance, we have to exercise our faith. When we tackle physical challenges, oxygen pumps in and out of our lungs and blood pumps in and out of our hearts, and our bodies are strengthened by this exertion. When we tackle spiritual challenges that come in the form of suffering, one of the basic things that we can do is we move in and out of the church doors regularly and with vigor. One big critique of these Hebrews is that they were neglecting the regular gathering of the saints for word and sacrament. They weren't heeding the call to come into church, and they weren't heeding the call to go out forth into the world in the power of the Spirit. To survive and thrive in the midst of suffering, nothing extraordinary is required of us. To stay healthy and to grow, we simply heed the basics of quiet obedience, moving into the church for worship and moving out into the world in mission. In and out, in and out, we learn to walk in faith as Jesus himself did. The measure of endurance is obedience to God. That's what verse 36 is getting at. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, in this fallen world, broken by sin in a million ways, every human being, Christian or otherwise, will undergo suffering. We're all born not only into suffering, but also into sin and into death. And this is our natural state. But Jesus, the coming one, the one who has come, made a way through suffering that actually leads us out from under sin and death. Suffering is a given, but the promises of God in Jesus are for freedom and deliverance from sin and death. And we can, by the grace of God and the ministry of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, be saved. All that is required is that we throw ourselves into his arms in faith. We hold to the promises of Jesus and walk faithfully with him and toward him, one step after the other, without turning back. Now, when I think about the need to persevere in faith, even when things look like they are going horribly wrong, I think about what it's like to pull on a t-shirt. So a long time ago, I went swimming at a classmate's house. This was when I was maybe eight or nine years old. And when we were done swimming, somehow I was assigned the task of helping my classmate's three-year-old sister change out of her swimsuit and back into her clothes. Now, she was not the most cooperative little kid I'd ever met. But to be fair, she wasn't too pleased that I, a virtual stranger, was put in charge of her. Um, but she did okay until we got to the part where I asked her to raise her arms so I could get her into her T-shirt. We started the procedure. She raised her hands, but suddenly she started screaming her head off and refused to cooperate. 
Now, I had no idea what was going on. But it turns out she was mad because she thought I was trying to trick her into putting her shirt on backwards. So you picture a t-shirt. There's a unicorn or a pony or something printed on the front of her t-shirt. But of course, from her perspective, looking up into it, it's as if I'm trying to pull the shirt over her head. The pony's all wrong. It was inside out and backwards, and she was just not having any of it. I tried so hard to explain how this worked. Yes, I tried to reason with a toddler. I told her, sure, things are going to look and feel crazy and wrong while pulling a shirt on just for a minute. But in the end, her really cool pony would be right side out, just the way she wanted it, for the whole rest of the day. She would have to suffer momentarily, but if we kept moving forward, salvation was at hand. Tragically. She was not willing to endure the suffering. I tried to shorten the period of pain by wadding up the shirt so it was just a ring of cloth. She couldn't see the pony inside or outside. I was just going to pop it over her head real fast, but nope. She clung to her disbelief. She crossed her arms and she shrank back. She decided that she would rather remain damp and cold and clammy than accept the warm, beautiful clothing that had been provided. Now, I know this is a goofy analogy, but the reality of this is really sobering. There is suffering in this world that we do not understand and that we cannot avoid. We are born wet and naked and cold, and we are going to die of it unless someone clothes us. But there is suffering, too, in being clothed with righteousness and salvation. Things are upside down and inside out and backwards, and it requires faith to persevere. Trusting the Lord for salvation involves voluntary suffering, the type of suffering that we might be able to avoid for a season if we turn back. Opening our arms up to the Lord in faith is vulnerable and uncertain and scary. We are exposed in a way that we don't have to suffer if we shrink back. But if we shrink back, we never get to the promise. If we stop living in faith, we don't reach the end and the reward of faith. Now, let me be very clear here. The Hebrews addressed here were not frightened children being punished for not trusting a stranger. That's not the analogy. These were grown, experienced men and women who had already been met by the faithfulness of God in their suffering. They had already tasted the salvation of God, and they were already actively receiving the compassion of Christ in their weakness. They knew from experience what they are reminded of repeatedly in this letter, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sin with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. The kind of shrinking back that leads to destruction is not the natural hesitant response to threat. The Lord has infinite patience for our native weaknesses. He knows them. He understands them. The type of shrinking back that leads to destruction 
is willful abandonment of the walk of faith. It is the gradual but intentional turning away from the love of God to embrace unbelief and sin instead. It is a deliberate throwing away of a confidence already possessed. It is a defiant closing of the ears against the wise calling voice of the Savior. It is a hardening of the heart against the salvation so freely offered and the one who offers it. These Hebrews were in the very early stages of rejecting God. Discouraged by the prospect of continued suffering, they were tempted to let go of the wheel and just start drifting with the current. And they didn't need comfort in this moment or advice to just relax. They needed to wake up and remember that in Christ Jesus, salvation is already close at hand and it's time to press on in faith. Now, I never succeeded in getting that little girl shirt on. But when her older sister finally came over to help, she was dressed in like 10 seconds. Why? She couldn't trust the promise, the process, and she didn't trust me, no matter how truthfully I promised her that it was going to work out okay. But when her own sister showed up and said the same thing, she was able to trust the process because she trusted the person. When your faith is not only in the promise of the reward, but in the one who promises, it turns out you can not only endure suffering, you can receive it with joy. Now, later in my life, I learned that Watchman Nee was born Nee Chutsu in 1903 in Fuchao, China. And he took on the name Watchman in both English and Chinese when he became a follower of Jesus. For 30 years, he led a beautiful, fruitful ministry in China and in Southeast Asia. And he persevered through all kinds of suffering, poverty, multiple chronic illnesses, infighting from political factions inside his own church. And after the Chinese Communist Revolution in 1949, Watchman Nee returned to China from his work in Hong Kong in order for the churches he had planted there, which were now in distress and suffering because of political opposition to their faith. Nee was arrested in 1952 and spent the rest of his life, 20 years, imprisoned in a labor camp where he died. One of his biographers wrote, Humanly speaking, Nee died in misery and humiliation. Not one relative or brother or sister in the Lord was with him. There was no proper notification of his death and no funeral. But he died with this note under his pillow. Christ is the Son of God who died for the redemption of sinners and resurrected after three days. This is the greatest truth in the universe. I die because of my belief in Christ. Watchman Nee. So in some sense, Watchman Nee was not an average Christian. Because of his boldness and endurance, approximately 400 churches were raised up in China, in the Philippines, in Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. But in another sense, Watchman Nee was surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses 
ordinary, normal believers who, like me, simply persevered obediently in faith. And during the Cultural Revolution, overlapped that same time period, 1966 to 1976, the communist regime undertook a plan to eradicate Christianity, and yet millions held fast to their confession of faith. The Christian church in China held firm, with Catholics remaining at 3 million and Protestants growing from 1 million to 3 million during this 10-year period. And we won't know the stories of these individual believers until we meet them in heaven. But we share the same promises that they held fast. And with them, we can testify that he who promised is faithful. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.